The reading is taken from St. John's Gospel, chapter 17. It may be found on page 1085 in the Pew Bibles or the Church Bibles. This chapter contains the prayer which Jesus offers on the eve of his crucifixion in the presence of his disciples. Chapter 17. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you, for I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy with them. I have given them your word. And the word has hasted them, for they are not of the world, any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that this world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be the one as we are one. I in them, and you in me. 
May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them, and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them, and that I myself may be in them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we continue this morning our series of sermons on prayer, and it may be helpful just to recap where we've been so far. In our first sermon, we considered praying to the Father. We pray as little children approaching a heavenly Father. The New Testament has preserved a slightly unusual word. The New Testament, of course, is written in Greek, but in two places in Paul's letters, and also in the account of Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane in Mark's Gospel, the New Testament has preserved the little word Abba, which is presumably the word that Jesus himself typically used in prayer when he prayed to his father. It's the word that a little child would use in addressing its father. The commentators all say that it doesn't mean daddy, but if it's, a little, if it's the word that a little child used, I can't see that the meaning can be very far from that. It's that sort of intimacy that Jesus used in prayer and that the Christian can have in prayer, according to Paul. We call him Abba, Father. Then we saw that we pray through the Son. Because of the work of Christ, his work on the cross and his living for us in heaven to intercede for us, we can be assured that God will hear our prayers. Not because we pray for long enough or because we pray in the right way, but because Jesus lives to intercede for us, God will hear our prayers. Then we thought about praying in the Spirit. The whole Christian life is lived in the Spirit. He guides us and leads us. And in prayer in particular, we saw that he interprets our prayers for us. We may pray all the wrong things, but God searches our hearts and knows if what we are seeking is God's will, though we may not know what God's will is. The Spirit interprets our prayers. And then we looked at the Lord's Prayer, the model or pattern prayer that Jesus gave to his disciples. But today I want to consider the question, how did Jesus himself pray? Jesus is our example in prayer as he is our example in everything else. We are to live as he lived and we are to pray as he prayed. Now if we are to pray as Jesus prayed, how should we pray? It's striking that there are very few of the actual prayers of Jesus recorded in the Gospels. There are really only a few and most of them are very brief. There's Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, not my will, but yours be done. There are various prayers that he uttered during the crucifixion itself. For example, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Or Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We have a prayer recorded at the tomb of Lazarus in John chapter 11. And a very brief prayer in John chapter 12, verse 28. Father, glorify your name. That's about it. Apart from this chapter in John's Gospel, chapter 17... This is the only prayer of Jesus of any length 
that is recorded must therefore demand our attention. Here is the only example we really have of how Jesus prayed. And if we're to pray as he prayed, we must pay attention to it. Now, in the 17th century, the Puritan preacher, who was also Oliver Cromwell's chaplain, Thomas Manton, preached a series of 45 sermons. And in 1873, Marcus Rainsford, who was a minister in London, published his lectures on John 17, the book ran to 450 pages. I could be here for quite a long time this morning. There's obviously hardly time to do this. I mean, it is a wonderful chapter. Here we have a discourse within the Trinity. Here we have the Eternal Son, the second person of the Trinity, speaking with his Father, the first person of the Trinity. Uh, Somebody has described... um, I mean, it's part of the Upper Room Discourse, chapters 14 to 17. Jesus in the Upper Room with his disciples. Someone has described this section of John's Gospel as like the the sanctuary in the temple, the holy place. And this chapter, Jesus' prayer to his Father, is the very holy of holies of Scripture. We see right into the heart and the mind of Christ and therefore of God. So there's hardly time to do it justice this morning. I'm not going to attempt an exposition. There are plenty available in print, perhaps most notably John Stott's exposition that he delivered uh, at Urbana in 1971. It's published today in a book called Christ the Liberator, which is probably out of print, but you can see copies occasionally secondhand. But I want to give some observations really just as guidelines for our own prayers. Uh, First, I think it's helpful to put the prayer in its context. John presents this great prayer as the climax to chapters 14 to 16, the Upper Room Discourse. And three times during these chapters, Jesus speaks of the disciples praying in his name. And I think it would be helpful to look back and look at those references. Flip back to chapter 14, verse 13. key idea that runs throughout these chapters is that Jesus is returning to his Father. He is going back to heaven. He's going by the way of the cross, but he's going back to heaven. And the disciples are to be left as his representatives on earth. And he says in verse 13, I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. Again in chapter 15, verse 16, He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And he's already said that that is to the Father's glory. And then he says, then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. And again, the third time, chapter 16, verse 23. In that day, says Jesus, you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Three times then, a reference to praying in the name of Jesus. And at first sight, it appears to be an unconditional promise of every prayer of ours being answered. Whatever you ask, you will have it, Jesus seems to say. For example, one best-selling Christian author has written, It is God's purpose to give you whatever you ask in faith. 
Jesus promises the answer to all, in capital letters, your prayers of faith. Everyone. Now the problem with that is that our experience is not that God answers all our prayers. What about unanswered prayer? We have all prayed at times in faith and not received what we've asked. This particular writer explains the problem as, he says that unanswered prayer is due to a lack of faith or the wrong sort of faith. Sounds like special pleading to me. In fact, Jesus says nothing at all about praying in faith. He's not talking about praying in faith. He's talking quite specifically about praying in his name. The question, therefore, is what exactly does he mean by that? What does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? Is it a matter of simply tacking on at the end of all our prayers in the name of Jesus? Obviously not. It means far more than that. And again, I think we have to get back to the context Jesus is returning to the Father and he is leaving the disciples as his representatives on earth. I think John 16, 23 to 26 actually gives us the clue to what he means by praying in his name. In that day, says Jesus, you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Though I've been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you, and so on. He's referring to the time when he has died and risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. And in that day, he says... There will be a difference in the way that you pray. Until now you have not prayed in my name, but then you will pray in my name. In that day, he says, you will no longer ask me anything. The implication seems to be that until this point, they have asked him for things and he has prayed on their behalf. But in that day, when he has returned to the Father, they will pray directly to the Father themselves in his name. Now, Jesus is returning to the Father and leaving his disciples to continue his work on earth. In a sense, they are left on earth in his name, as his representatives, to do his work, to continue his mission. They are there, as it were, in his place, as if Jesus himself was still on earth. I think that's what it means when he talks about praying in his name. They will continue his work, as it were, in his place. And when they pray, they will also pray, as it were, in his place, as his representatives on earth, as if it were Jesus himself praying to the Father. And when we pray like that, then we shall receive whatever we ask. Now, if this is right, it is an astonishing thought, isn't it? I mean, I do not pray like that most of the time, as if it were Jesus praying. I pray all sorts of things that are selfish, misconceived, completely the wrong thing. But by the inspiration of the Spirit living within us, can this be true that sometimes we might actually pray the prayers of Jesus, the prayers that Jesus would pray if he were in our place on earth? I believe we can. 
In other words, our prayers will be answered when we pray as Jesus prayed. Now, that's why it's so important to have John 17. John 17 shows us what prayer in Jesus' name looks like. When we pray in Jesus' name, when we pray as Jesus prayed, then we will pray like this. So that John 17 is a pattern for our prayer, just as the Lord's Prayer is a pattern for our prayer. And it conveniently seems to break down into three sections. There are three basic requests. It's quite a complicated chapter, and there are all kinds of connections within it and themes that run through it. But basically, Jesus prays for three things. First of all, it is a prayer for God to be glorified. And this is verses 1 to 5. Verse 1, Jesus says, Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. And again in verse 5, he says, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Now, clearly verse 5 is referring to the glory of heaven. But the glory of heaven is revealed in this world. And I think that's what Jesus is referring to in verse 1. Not just the glory in heaven, but the glory of Christ revealed in the world. Now, God is glorified when Jesus is glorified. It's rather like uh, Philippians 2. Uh, the hymn that we sang right at the start of the service is based on Philippians 2. But you remember that God's purpose is that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Father is glorified as his Son is glorified. And Jesus is glorified specifically in his death. The time has come, he says. The NIV translators, for reasons best known to themselves, do not translate this word the way they normally translate it in John's Gospel. It's the word hour. It's been a running theme through John's Gospel. Repeatedly, Jesus has said, my hour has not yet come. And then in John chapter 12, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified and immediately goes on to speak about his death and specifically his death by crucifixion. Here's the extraordinary feature of John's Gospel that the glory of Christ is seen in his death, a death of shame and disgrace and ignominy. Yet it reveals his glory. And again, if you look at verses 2 and 3, you see the little word for... Glorify your son that your son may glorify you for because you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The glory of Christ is seen in his cross and it is connected with the giving of eternal life to all who believe in him and with the knowledge of God. And of Christ. Christ is glorified as people receive eternal life in his name. As they hear and believe the gospel and come to believe in him. And again verse 4. God is glorified by Christ completing the work he came to earth to do the work of salvation. In other words, God is glorified in his son through the salvation that Jesus came to accomplish 
as people come to know God in Christ and find eternal life in him. And this is what we shall pray for as we pray in Jesus' name. Secondly, it's a prayer for Christ's servants to be sanctified. A prayer for Christ's servants to be sanctified. Uh, This is the second section from verses 6 to 19. And primarily, Jesus is thinking of the apostles with him in the upper room. You'll see that from verse 12. Because he says that none has been lost except the one doomed to destruction. That is a reference to Judas. But I think there is a secondary sense that applies to all of Christ's servants. There's a sense in which we follow in the steps of the apostles, not as the instruments of divine revelation, but as Christ's ambassadors to proclaim the gospel that he gave to them. Now, verses 6 to 11 spells out who they are, and the key thing is that they are distinct from the world. Verse 9, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. So he is praying for his servants rather than for the world. And in verses 11 to 19, there are three petitions for them. First, at the end of verse 11, he prays literally that the Father would keep them in his name. Holy Father, keep them in your name. I think the NIV's expansion is a little misleading. It's not so much that Jesus is praying for God to keep them by his power. Rather, he is praying that God would keep them in the name of God. That is, in the truth of God that has been revealed through Christ. You'll be aware that in the Bible, the name stands for the person, for the character, for what is known about that person, for his nature. Christ has revealed the name of God. See verse 6. I have revealed you. Now again, it's a slight mistranslation because... There's a little footnote that says that the Greek actually says, I have revealed your name. Christ has revealed what God is like. That is his name, his character, his attributes, his will and his purpose. Christ has revealed that to those whom you gave me out of the world. Now he prays that God would keep them in that name, the truth that Christ has revealed about God. In verse 8, He says that God had given him words and he had given those words to his disciples. And it's very similar to what he says in verse 22 where he says that God had given him glory and he has given that glory to his disciples. I think again it's a reference to the revelation of God that came through Christ. In Christ we see the glory of God. It is revealed. And Christ has passed on that revelation to his servants. So Jesus is praying that God will keep them in the knowledge of God that had been revealed to them through him. Then secondly, in verse 15, he prays that God would keep them from the evil one. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Jesus again, remember, is returning to the Father. He's going back to heaven. But he is leaving his disciples in the world as his representatives. And twice he says they are not of the world. 
They do not belong to the world. They do not live by the world's standards or its values. Verse 14 and verse 16. They are not of the world, just as he is not of the world. Therefore, Jesus says, they face the world's hatred, just as he had. Verse 14. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them. Now, there's pressure, therefore, to avoid suffering, to avoid the world's hatred by becoming like the world, by conforming to the world, by belonging to the world instead of being loyal to Christ. And that, of course, is what the evil one wants. He does his work through the world. He pressurizes Christians to give up their allegiance to Christ or to compromise it and to become instead conformed to this world. Keep them, says Jesus, from the evil one at work through the pressures, the hatred of this world. Now the third petition in verse 17 really seems to me to sum up the other two. Sanctify them by the truth, says Jesus. Your word is truth. The word sanctified means simply to be set apart as holy, belonging exclusively to God for his use, for his service. We tend to think of holiness in moral categories. But it isn't just a moral concept. The vessels in the temple, all the utensils that were used in the services, they were holy, consecrated, set apart. You wouldn't use them to brush your teeth in. They're holy, sacred, for a special purpose. Sanctify them, says Jesus. Set them apart from worldly pursuits and pleasures so that they belong to you for your service. And again, he says, literally, sanctify them in the truth. Keep them faithful to that word, that revelation that has been given to them. Verse 14, he said, I've given them your word. Then verse 17, he says, your word is truth. And the reason for this sanctification is spelt out in verse 18. As you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Jesus said that God had given him the truth. God had given him his word. God had given him words to speak. And he'd passed on those words to his apostles. He'd passed on the glory, the revelation of God. He'd passed on God's word to them. And that word sanctifies them, sets them apart... And it is that word that they take into the world to spread it. Praying in Jesus' name then means praying to be kept in the revelation of God's name in Christ. To be kept from the evil one and from the pressures of this world. And to be set apart for Christ's mission into the world. And when we pray as Jesus prayed, that is how we will pray. And then finally a prayer for all believers to be unified, God glorified, his servants sanctified, all believers unified. Now this is uh, verses 20 to the end, but it's already been anticipated at the end of verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. And now that petition for oneness is repeated in verses 20 and 22. 
My prayer is not for them alone, not just for the disciples in the upper room. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, including us, 2,000 years later. I pray for them that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Again, verse 22. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one, as we are one, I in them and you in me. Now please note that this is the unity of a shared life. It is not the unity of an institution or an organization or of human structures. It's not a matter of committees getting together and drawing up schemes of reunion. Jesus prays that we might be one as he and the Father are one. Again, there's an astonishing thought here. The idea is that we actually share in the life of the triune God. That we actually live that life that we share in the relationship between the persons of the Trinity. We are one even as the Father and the Son are one. It is the unity of a shared life. It is the eternal life that is ours in Christ. And again, there is a purpose. And the purpose is expressed twice. Verse 21 again. That all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And again, verse 23. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. Unity, in other words, is not an end in itself. It's not just so that we should have a nice time together in church. Unity is a means to the effective evangelization of the world. May they be one so that the world may know and believe the truth. Bruce Milne writes in his exposition of John's Gospel, the biggest barriers to effective evangelism are not so much outmoded methods or inadequate presentations of the Gospel as realities like gossip, insensitivity, negative criticism, jealousy, backbiting, an unforgiving spirit, a root of bitterness, failure to appreciate others, self-preoccupation, greed, selfishness, and every other form of lovelessness. These are the squalid enemies of effective evangelism which render the gospel fruitless and send countless thousands into eternity without a saviour. Thomas Manton said that divisions in the church breed atheism in the world. We preach a message of eternal life through Christ. But that eternal life is the shared life of the Trinity. And if people cannot see it, why should they believe our message? So unity is a means to the effective evangelization of the world. And it's striking to notice how often the world is mentioned in this prayer. It's a prayer for God to be glorified, a prayer for Christ's servants to be sanctified, and a prayer for believers to be unified. You'd think it was very churchy, just concerned with Christ and his church. And yet the world is never out of mind or out of sight as you read it. Nineteen times the world is mentioned in this prayer. As I said earlier, we have here 
the eternal son conversing with the eternal father, the two first persons of the Trinity in dialogue. Well, it's monologue actually because God doesn't speak back. But you get the idea. We see here into the heart of the Trinity and what is going on there. It's rather like Isaiah in the temple when he saw God's glory filling the temple and he was allowed, as it were, to eavesdrop on the Trinity because he heard God saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? As if the question that preoccupies Almighty God is constantly the question, how can I reach this lost world? Who will go? Whom shall I send? So here the concern is for the glory of God, but the glory of God seen in the salvation of the world, for the sanctity of Christ's servants, so that they might be effective in the mission for which he sends them, and for the unity of his church for all believers, so that the gospel might be preached effectively. As we pray in Jesus' name then, we shall pray for a united witness to the world of the life that is ours in Christ. So this is how we are to pray if we are to pray as Jesus prayed. For God to be glorified as people come to know him and receive eternal life. For Christ's servants to be sanctified, to be kept in the revelation of God's name and kept from the evil one as they are sent into the world with the word of truth. And for all believers to be unified as we share in the life of God that the world might know and believe the truth about Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray as your disciples prayed so long ago, teach us to pray and teach us to pray like this. Teach us to pray as you prayed. Teach us to pray in your name as your representatives here on earth. Teach us to pray with your priorities, your purposes. Teach us to pray for God's glory, for our sanctity and for our unity that the world might be saved. Amen.